Hello and welcome to the Collapse Podcast. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we are going to talk about Polaroid. And if you are binging this and you just finished the Pan Am series, you'll remember that our character got off the Pan Am flight and was walking towards an Ames department store. Which was true, but he realized it was quite far away and instead went into the local radio shack and got a Polaroid. So today we are talking about Polaroid. And what does Polaroid make you think of? When you think of Pan Am, you think of planes. And Polaroid, you think of cameras. But Polaroid did much more than cameras. And in the beginning, cameras were barely in the minds of its founder. And we're going to be talking about the man that started Polaroid and essentially was Polaroid, Edwin Land. He's a special character, not just for what he did here, but who he inspired. Steve Jobs often attributes him as an inspiration. In a way, it is a proto-Silicon Valley. Hmm. And another thing that kind of made him a proto-Silicon Valley type was his presentations and the way that he wrote his shareholders reports, which is much more enjoyable than kind of the bland corporate ones from other companies. And so he really was kind of looked on as uh, inspirational for these future tech companies. Except that's that's really interesting. I'm interested to know more because usually you think of Silicon Valley and you're thinking of all these computer companies and probably thinking like Apple, IBM, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, uh, Polaroid being an inspiration is kind of uh, it's a bit um, unexpected. <laughs> yeah, but it does make sense in a way you have to think, well, they have to get inspiration from somewhere. Somebody has to start it. I guess it could have been Apple or like you said, Microsoft, but. Well, they could, but then you think about it, a lot of these guys are touted as innovators who like came up with these unique ways of doing business and project planning and all of that on their own. So to hear like, oh, Steve Jobs actually was inspired by Polaroid. <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and they're a really neat company. And before we go into the story of Polaroid, I am going to mention one other company. There's not a great time to necessarily mention them in the story. But they intertwine quite a bit with Polaroid, and I just want to briefly explain uh, who they are and why they're so important to the Polaroid story, and that is Kodak. Polaroid does do a lot with cameras later, and Kodak does quite a bit with cameras and film, and these companies are intertwined. And just for a size comparison, because this will make sense down the road, Kodak employs at its height about 75,000 employees. Polaroid at its height... About 21,000. Mm. Kodak is a behemoth in this world, and uh, you'll see their inter their relationship intertwine as we move on. Uh, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about them, and I'll bring them up again. Okay. So to do a brief outline of this episode, we're going to talk about Edwin's land early life, the creation of the Polaroid Company, its role in World War II, and then finally, at the end of this episode, it's going to be the build-up to the Polaroid that everyone loves and knows, the camera. Let's talk about Edwin Land. He was born May 7th, 1909. He was the son of a scrap metal dealer. He was quite a curious young man who caused quite a bit of problems for his parents. At six years old, he blew all the fuses in his house. <laughs> <As a, laughs> That's quite the feat. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking forks in the sockets or something. <laughs> uh, nice, yeah. yeah. He was introverted and he loved to tinker, as you could see by that. 
He was well-groomed, mm. he's described as handsome, and he had a piercing stare, something that he and Trip, if you remember from Pan Am, shared. Mm. He was cultured and appreciated people who had both depth and breadth. As an example, he enjoyed a businessman who was also an artist. As a young adult, he befriended an art history professor who would then handpick scientists into his future company. And in a way, he was a pioneer. He hired a lot of women. Hmm. Land was also quite tenacious. Uh, there was a story or a myth, probably a little mix of both, that had come out about where he was forced to visit an aunt he didn't like. And he was quoted as saying he wouldn't let anyone tell him what to do ever again. <laughs> and as you'll see in the story, his control over Polaroid was almost absolute. So when did he gain an interest in what? what is a Polaroid? Is it even a thing? So polarization, he learned and he gained an interest about from a book called Physical Optics, which was written in 1911. And ever since then, he became obsessed. So we're going to briefly describe what polarization is. Uh, this is a quote from uh, him, Edwin Land. I kind of cut it down a little bit just to try to keep it as concise as possible, but I, he tries to describe it in layman's terms, and I think it's going to be the best way to describe what this is. A polarizer is a unique type of filter. If you picture a beam of light as a handful of thrown straws oriented in every direction, the polarizing filter is the picket fence. The only straws that come through are the ones that align perfectly with the slots between the pickets. Sunlight is also polarized, so when it bounces off a flat, non-metallic surface like a lake or the roadway in front of you, it causes glare. Adding a polarizing layer to sunglasses blocks light vibrating in that one plane, wiping out glare and helping drivers see the road. That's wordy, but I feel it does an apt description of how polarization works. If that was too many words, light is comes in different directions and polarizers create kind of a fence, and so light can only go through in that one direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say as you were describing this that typically when you hear polarization, I think of sunglasses because... You know, polarized sunglasses are there to reduce glare. You have some that um, are designed for work environments that reduce um, blue light. I used to have one that I wore that did a too good of a job of that. I would drive with it and it would uh, make me sleepy because <laughs> it, oh, it got yeah, rid of yeah. all the blue light. Um, so, you know, it's uh, that's, I think, the typical application that most people think of now when they hear of polarization. Yeah, Absolutely. And we're going to talk about uh, sunglasses uh, here in a little bit, because it's definitely one of the first applications of it. Not the first, though, as, as we'll see. Uh, he went to Harvard. And in 1926, he was pretty frustrated just after a year due to the structured classes and the, his unfocused classmates. So he moved to New York. He created a lab in a rented room, and he worked really hard. He was a workaholic. He got married. He had his first breakthrough in 1928 at just 19 years old. He created his first synthetic polarizer. Uh, once he made this, he kind of teamed up with two people, uh, a patent lawyer and an attorney. And they, these two figures kind of guided him through the world of business and law for a few decades. So as you said with the sunglasses, polarizers, not a camera or pictures, is what generated money for this company for the next 20 years. So Land decided to go back to Harvard and he met a friend, George Wheelwright. They went into business together. Land had some capital from his dad and his patent that he had. And Wheelwright uh, had everything else. So the first company went into business is the Land Wheelwright Laboratories. 
what problem should they solve? They were trying to, now that they have this technology, they're trying to figure out how they're going to make money. You mentioned sunglasses, and obviously we know they ultimately go to cameras at some point, but that is not what they wanted to solve first. They had a very humanitarian approach. They realized that something they could do that could possibly make money as well as save a lot of lives is solve headlight glare. At this Mm. point in time, 50 people died every night from highway glare, which comes out to about 18,250 people a year. Wow, that's a lot. That's a staggering statistic (laughs) from just (laughs) headlight glare. Exactly. So they wanted to create a polarized headlight. So he went around and he pitched it to automakers, and they were interested. The problem was this only worked if every car had it. So there was zero benefit to being the first automaker to do it and implement it. So you have an increased cost with po- with no immediate benefit. It would only work if other automakers would also right. do this it. This sounds like a, a time for regulation. <laughs> Where there's there's no <laughs> exactly. incentive for uh, anybody to be competitive about it. So you've got to have the government step in and say, <laughs> you're going to do it. Yeah. Exactly. And because of that, nobody bought it. So scratch mm. that. Try to save people's lives. And I'm guessing there's no implementation of this in any kind today. I have to say, I didn't look into it that far. Yeah. But I don't think so. I haven't heard of anything, but that doesn't mean it's out yeah, there. Exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. So that didn't work. They needed to make some money to survive. So it found its first large customer, the Eastman Kodak Company. Uh, at this time, as I said before, Kodak was the largest photographic company in the world. And they had a pretty cool slogan and before i say the slogan if you remember kodak makes these nifty little cameras where you click and you kind of and they have film in there and you kind of turn it and then once you're done with the films you know it has a little number of how many picture or yeah you can take Mm -hmm. you send in the film and you wait a few days and you can then you find out how bad the pictures look and then you out of the 20 pick three of them (laughs) so that's what they were making at the time this was the camera but they did have a nifty slogan which was quote you push the button, and we will do the rest. It's a good slogan. Fairly clever. It's good. Yeah. Somebody in marketing got a nice bonus. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but that was the best at the time. You know, the days of having a camera and a stand with a black drape over it was over. Anybody could take a picture with a Kodak camera. This was the first camera re- revolution. Between these and the Hollywood uh, tapes, which ended up being billions of mile, uh, Kodak uh, was doing quite well and they were interested in the polarizing filters that polaroid was making kodak was nervous about buying from such a young company now i told you at polaroid's height it had like twenty-one thousand employees at this point in time they had like 300 they're a very small company Mm. i should probably rephrase it they had probably even less than that at this point in time i probably think getting a little ahead of myself but they took the stab anyway in 1934 they created some polarizing sheets for kodak and they sent them out there and Kodak sent them a check. Sources are a little, uh, they don't always agree on this, but they sent them a check for somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars, which is the equivalent of one hundred and ten to two hundred twenty thousand dollars today. Okay, too bad, too shabby. At this point, and yeah, this is the biggest check and payday they've ever gotten. Um, typically, they were doing sales around five thousand to contracts with American Optical, the sun and the glass people, and Bosch and Lom. So. They're making some polarizing sheets. They're making some money there. And now they go into the sunglass industry. Well, salt of the sunglass industry. And I told you Land was quite creative and clever when it came to marketing and 
this is a great example to showcase that. He invited the executives of American Optical to come out to the hotel to kind of look at his polarizing sunglasses or his sheets. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he made sure he got a room that was facing the sun and he set up some bowls of goldfish. So when that happens, there was a large amount of glare in the room. He, when the executives came in, he apologized to him and he said, you probably can't even see the fish that are in here. So he gave him the polarized glasses and a few days later he got the sale. <laughs> <laughs> so then they, they want to create a name for this product. And you can see they're, they're in a meeting room and one of the marketing executives who probably read a too, too much Greek philosophy, he said, you, uh, I have a sophisticated name. We'll call it Epibolipol. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he did too many surveys on that. Yeah, uh, it means in Greek it means polarizer, uh, but it's a little too sophisticated. <laughs> uh, so that didn't make it out of the meeting room. But they they definitely everybody there definitely agreed it should end in oid. You know, kind of sounded techy and futuristic. Interesting. It's like their version of the I, the little I that we had in the mid two thousands. Everything was an I something. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. Uh, so they had oid and they had polarizing. And I said, well, why don't we just kind of like mix those together? And they said, okay, Polaroid, that's good. And then before it became a household name, it was often mispronounced as Poilaroid uh, or Poilaroid. There's some different pronunciations. Interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Polaroid. So here's the first time you really kind of see that word. And this is about 1936, 1937. In 1937, uh, the company, the Land Wheelwright Company, they were doing quite well. Uh, they were doing well enough to appear in Fortune magazine. There are a number of inventions coming out of the company. So you know the their main thing that they're selling, they're trying to put in everything, is now this polarization technology. And one of the things they came up with was an anti-glare desk lamp. That's pretty cool. Hmm. But the really cool one is this polarized window. And what it was, was you have this window and there's a slider and you could uh, move the slider. And as you move it, it increases the polarization or the darkness of the window all the way to completely black. So you could adjust, adjust the shade during the day, basically. I like that. Very expensive and it didn't sell very well because Mm. of that. But a very neat concept. Actually, I wish we had more of those. I wonder if there's like a niche company that does that. Although some of the, some of these companies too, you know, you even think of like transitions now that the lens for your glasses that'll darken as you go outside. I imagine there's there's got to be something like that for windows, but it still must be expensive because I don't see it anywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. So they have polarizing down and they wanted to do something else. They were started to work on 3D effects. You know, we are able to see depth because our eyes are apart and our brain can reconcile the difference between what each eye sees and so it can create that 3D image. So they were trying to use that to create 3D glasses for movies they really couldn't find a partner until they came across chrysler and in the 1939 at 1940 world fair they partnered with chrysler and they created a 3d movie to show how a plymouth was put together that's fascinating that they did that i mean like it's just interesting that chrysler was the one that stepped up for that in 1940 yeah in 1940 you could sit there and watch a 3d movie but oddly enough Hollywood wasn't really interested in the technology for their films. I feel like they still kind of aren't, <laughs> even today. <laughs> That's true, I guess. IMAX is a, 
not the main sales point, I guess. But the, the people that were there were very excited and very impressed mm. by the technology. And Wheelwright was responsible for the partnership with Chrysler. But that was kind of one of the last things that he did. The Chrysler deal was, that was really it. His connections helped the company get Wall Street financing. Oh, that's good. But that was kind of it. Land was the president of the company, director of research, and the source of the majority of ideas. <laughs> well, Wheelwright had his name on the door. His name eventually dropped off the door, and in 1937, the company reincorporated into the Polaroid Corporation. And that same year, Wheelwright left for a vacation, and he ne never came back. His name eventually dropped off the door, and in 1937, the company reincorporated into the Polaroid Corporation. And that same year, Wheelwright left for a vacation, and he ne never came back. That sounds a little ominous. <laughs> Came back, but not really any role in the company. He eventually joined the Navy as lieutenant. That's an odd transition. That's what I thought. I only saw that in one source, but I, I, I liked it. It feels a little bit like a now what kind of transition, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we're kind of here. We're hitting 1940. A lot of things happen in the world in 19... Well, 1939, but 1940, World War II is definitely happening... The company's not really doing too well. Their losses have reached $100,000, $2.1 in today's money. And But World War I ends up being a boon for Polaroid. In 1940, the company starts to gain military contracts. And this is where Edwin Land just shows his incredible brilliance. You know, when I think of Pan Am, I think of business savvy. You know, that's kind of how the business kind of moved forward and... You saw Trip just maneuver so well and manipulate mm -hmm. companies. I would call Polaroid, you know, invention, not invention, inventor genius. I mean, the company is moving forward because of its inventions, not necessarily because they're super business savvy. As you saw with the, the headlamps, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best way to move forward because there was really no competitive advantage. So they start mm -hmm. gaining these military contracts. They produce goggles for the army some optics or reconnaissance, some bomb sites, and this never was used in the war, but they actually call, uh, created a heat-seeking missile called Project Dove, which I thought was a ironic name. <laughs> uh, if your company's not doing well and they say, we'll give you, I think it was something like $7 million for this project, I think you just say, okay. Yeah, well, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, well, get their income before the war was like 761,000 or 16 million. And then a, the government's offering you $7 million to create a program. It's pretty good. Wow. In the eight years since then, their, or since the war, their income rose to 16 million or $340 million today. And they rose to 1,200 employees. Now we're going to talk about some of his inventions. Yeah. So this is a story that just kind of shows how smart he is. One of his traits was his ability to invent on spur of the moment. Useful in, in war. So he Land once recalled this uh, memory to one of his engineers that an Air Force general had called him to ask for advice about a problem with their gun sights. And he tells it as Land's reply that he would fly down to Washington the next day to describe the solution that he had for the problem. And the general said, oh, you have a solution? He goes, no, but I'll have one tomorrow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And he did. He created the ring sight based on circular polarizers, something he invented overnight. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. They also created something called vectograph classes. Uh, this was called 
they created like a little school for it called the Polaroid War School. And what they would do is they would take re- the reconnaissance pictures in 2D and they taught them how to create 3D reconnaissance pictures so it was easier for bombers to hit their targets. And they did it by like overlaying things over each other. And it was uh, there was quite a lengthy description. I'll just leave it at that. But it was used by the Allies often and it was used in Normandy. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so you played a pretty big part in World War II. Yeah, more than most people know. And the company was thriving, mm-hmm. but all good things come to an end. And Lane had a pretty strong ethical or moral center when it came to employees. He felt that it was the job of the company to take care of the employee, employees, especially during hard times. And the hard times came. The war ended, the military contracts dried up, and people had to go for the company to survive. The company shrunk from 1,200 down to 240. And Lane had a pretty strong ethical or moral center when it came to employees. He felt that it was the job of the company to take care of the employee, employees, especially during hard times. And the hard times came. The war ended, the military contracts dried up, and people had to go for the company to survive. The company shrunk from 1,200 down to 240. Everything is falling apart. Sales are down to two million, which is twenty six million today, down from the sixteen million that it was before. Things are not looking well, but it is higher than it was pre war. I would like to kind of point that out. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say it is a little interesting that they must have the significant portion that came from the military because you know you think of post war U.S. economy and it's like a a, a time of consumerism you know people are like the war is over i don't have to ration anymore they begin buying more and more things um it was kind of a from my recollection anyway it was like a a economy booster so it's interesting that you know polaroid had so much vested in these military contracts as soon as it was over it was like (laughs) right back to the old ways for them now let's just remember this is we're just basically saying we'll say this is 1945 roughly 1946 the first camera comes out in 1947. Mm, okay, so it's this gap. So you'll see, yeah, they're not, I mean, at this point in time, they don't know that. And in fact, the camera's not really on their radar at this exact second in time. So sales aren't really doing well. They don't really have a product anymore. They're not selling to the military. They got some polarizing sheets, making a little bit to the sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so they're kind of looking around at their projects that they have. And they looked and they decided that the best project that they had that had the ability to make any kind of money was a camera. And they felt that it was the best time to do it. The As you were talking about, there's so many different technologies here. People are getting used to things that are more instant gratification. The first microwave was created by Raytheon at this time. Uh, and there was an article in 1945 this was a really interesting article to read. They were describing, this is 1945, a machine that looked like a desk and it could hold thousands of documents and you could press a button or two and you could pull up any document that you wanted on command. It would be there in front of File Explorer. <laughs> yeah. It could be considered a early World yeah. Wide Web or computer. Yeah. So here's a camera, but a camera doesn't really do too much i mean kodak's out there they got film cameras you really you compete with Mm -hmm. that but again you don't have a competitive advantage there so there's this apocryphal slash true story that is going around and you can go to any 
research site or book and it's about Polaroid, it's pretty much going to have this exact story in it. So we'll, we'll call it truth. Since, And the story is, in late 1943, Land joined his family on vacation in Santa Fe. And on a day, he went out for a walk with his three-year-old daughter. And he wasn't much of a photographer in those days, but he did take pictures of his little girl. And then afterwards, they were outside. They were inside at the fireplace. His daughter asked him a question. His dad, why can't I see the Mm. picture now? (laughs) And so then he created a dream. And his dream and his words are, he had a dream of a photographic camera in which you simply photograph a subject and from the same camera rolls out a finished picture. Uh Ah, here we go. The Polaroid that we know is starting to come in. And that story, and most of my notes, just because I have it quoted here, are from the book Instant. Who is the source of the story besides the book? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, like, uh, who is the who was the original source of the story? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if they know. I think it's one of those things that got kind of passed around the the company. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off there, but yeah, I was just curious about you know who came up with the story. It seems believable, but it's very tight. <laughs> it is. So it is. he wanted to create this instant camera, and as I said before, he's a bit of a workaholic. He's also paranoid because now that he thought of this, he felt that everybody else was going to invent it as well, and so. So this is the other thing that makes the story seem a little less believable. That his patent lawyer and friend was also conveniently in Santa Fe at the same time for vacation and met up with Land and they spent a few hours hashing out the details and figuring out how to get a patent. And they said they he said he figured out all the details right then and there, except the ones that took from nineteen forty three to nineteen seventy two to solve. <laughs> this project was known as Project SX. 70, which stood for special experiment. Everything in the company and other and funds were moved to this project. And the first Polaroid picture was created. It was bright yellow, didn't look great, but you could tell what the subject was. And it did. It was instant. Well, relatively instant. You know, it comes out and then develops. And as progress continued to improve the picture, there were complications. Instead of black and white, sometimes it would be blue and white or brown. Mm-hmm. However, a few years later, in 1947, through all this turmoil and the, t- t- the company shrinking, it was ready. And Land and his company Polaroid were ready to show the world their new invention, the Land Camera. Ironically, people thought it meant you couldn't shoot pictures near water. That is the end of the narration portion. And we hope you enjoyed it. Hey everybody, Matt here. Uh, That's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast, but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to have, feel free to enjoy. All right, Matt, this is the first time you've heard about Polaroid, really. What did you think? Was it different than you expected? Um, A little bit. I mean, you know, my exposure to Polaroid is, of course, some of the cameras and and things like that. But um, I had no idea the influence that they had in World War II. I think that's the biggest surprise to me. You know, you hear a lot about companies that um, are everyday consumer companies but are involved in military contracts and you find out all the things that they've invented. I think it's adjacent to space exploration, right? You know, we get, if I remember correctly, the microwave and things like that came from um, 
trying to figure things out for space space travel just to get to the moon you know so um yeah. it's pretty interesting how war and uh space travel i guess if you will uh are two motivating factors for invention otherwise you know <laughs> the companies kind of just stumble along a little bit sometimes which it seems the case with polaroid you know they were like well we're just making sunglasses and some windows that only like three people bought so you know <laughs> you can definitely tell their start was very different than like pan am and i mean i know it's the only other company i've done right now but pan am did seem they really did have like this just rise and then fall pan am uh polaroid is really kind of going up and down they really could have lost it if it wasn't for world war it II. seems like to me they they either are too niche sometimes in who they're selling to or they don't have a market focus you know like they're really good at creating inventions but not always like who wants to buy it right or can we sell it appropriately and i think that's the case mm -hmm. with the window right like it's a really good invention um but you haven't priced it appropriately so that it's accessible which i know can be a cost factor but you know like if it costs a lot to produce but um it maybe it's it's more they were driven by the invention. They were trying to do more of a uh, market push, if you will, uh, than a market pull. They're trying to push their inventions oh, yeah. on the public as opposed to attracting consumers by asking them what they mm -hmm. want. <laughs> and I think you'll see that that does kind of shift as the camera comes out. It, mm, yeah. Okay. Any any other thoughts for the the company? Yeah, I was also going to ask. This might be a little early, but. There's two phrases that exist in sort of the public conscience and its uh, consciousness is, uh, you know, that's a Kodak moment, right? Yes. And then, and then, uh, you know, show me the Polaroids or something like that, right? Something equivalent. Shake it like a Polaroid, which is from the refrain from Outcast. Interesting. Artist. Yeah, it came from his one of his songs. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I'm thinking. What is the distinction that people make when they say, oh, I have a bunch of old Polaroids in my closet uh, versus I guess I have not really heard anybody say to me, like, I've got a bunch of Kodaks in a box, <laughs> um, you know, but like why specifically did Polaroid take that spot for a, a photograph when Kodak is doing something similar and you might show someone a Kodak photo? and refer to it as a Polaroid in the same way that you've bought a box of tissues off of Amazon and call it Kleenex. Yeah, that is a, it could be a, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but I will say it is instant. You are, if I have a camera, I point it at you, I click it. I'm going to get a picture right there. Mm -hmm. Kodak, you got to send it off. You wait a few days and then you see if it's even, and if the picture's bad for the Polaroid, you just take it again and it comes right out. Do you think also it's maybe the accessibility of the instant photos? Like if when someone says, oh, I have some Polaroids, they literally mean I have photos taken on a Polaroid camera that were instant. And then over time, that level of accessibility just cemented that as a term you use for a physical photo. Yeah, definitely. Polaroids, uh, something I probably should have mentioned at the beginning, but I'll mention in our discussion, which is just another why, reason why you should listen to the discussion for these little tid tidbits. Polaroids are making a comeback. If you can see them, if I mm -hmm. saw them in a store the other day, um, it is not the same company. It is the exact same name. It was bought, but it is not this company. And so there is still a market for a Polaroid because you can take a picture with a phone 
and you have an instant picture, but it's not a physical thing. You still would have to find a way to print it. And yes, you can get, you know, like we have a printer at home that can mm-hmm. print off pictures and stuff, but you can, it's still is something about taking a picture and it's just right there. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I think the the thing people are discovering that's, well, part of it is nostalgia sells. Uh, I think we're all a yep. victim to that <laughs> to some extent, um, you know, but uh, the other thing people I think are discovering is uh, as much as our, we have our best intentions, we don't really go through our digital photo collection um, like we would like to, you know, or you take so many, you know, you take 2000 photos and then you're like, ah, I'll go through and print some out and put them in a book. And you just don't, I mean, people do, but not many people do because it's so much work. Mm-hmm. And with a physical camera, you have to be more selective about what photos you're taking. And then if it's right then and there, now you actually can do something with it uh, immediately. Um, and I think people are sort of rediscovering that I think that's a, at least a factor uh, of its comeback. I've seen Polaroids too, and some of the stores around me have gone to certain stores and they're selling the cameras, they're selling the the instant mm-hmm. ones, like you used to the snap cameras, um, which you'd get developed at the store. But um, you know, a lot of that seems to be making a making a comeback. And I think too, uh, as a side note, uh, I recently got into records, and um, Victrola is a is an old record. Uh, they would make records and they also made record players and they went out of business and then they were purchased. The name was purchased again. They're selling machines again, um, Uh but owned by a different company, but the name was purchased in the same way as Polaroid. They're sort of operating off of that old memory that some people have Uh about that brand, you know? Well, like Toys R Us and Mm -hmm. Macy's. Absolutely. There is a lot of power in a name, even if it, you know, that didn't work for the company itself. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they do well to keep it secret that it's not the same company because you usually have to dig mm-hmm. to find that out. You know, they like to make you think that it's the original company. Absolutely. And we're going to discover in the next episode what makes Polaroid so special. This is what makes them unique. Up to this point in time, uh, well, they, he does have some really neat inventions, uh, but there's nothing that would ever make them a colossus in, in our business world. But the next episode, they do become that. And we'll see how that unfolds and how it affects things. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, great. All right. Well, folks, uh, we look forward to uh, whatever that will be. It will be some time. And uh, again, uh, well, I guess we'll just say it here. Maybe I'll move this part around. But our production schedule is all over the place. It will probably be a few months before the next one comes out, uh, just due to our busy schedules. Yeah. Yeah, well, but, we're working on it, but uh, things yeah. the research takes time, and uh, our schedules are variable right now. So, but we enjoy this, and we will continue to keep coming back, and the episodes will keep coming slowly but surely. Turtles do win races. <laughs> That's right. So, all right. Till next time. All righty. 